Jesus said a lot of controversial things, but maybe the thing that has offended more people than any other statement he made was when he said that he was the only way to God. And the thing about it is he made it so clear. In John 14, uh, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, when Jesus made this claim, one thing he was doing was he was saying that we as Christians then in some sense are kind of missionaries or his representative to a lost world. Because here's the thing. If, if the only way to have a relationship with the God who created us and the God who loves us is through Jesus, then it's the responsibility of Christians to share with other people that in Jesus there's forgiveness. And, and in Jesus, there's hope, and in Jesus, there's truth, and in, in Jesus, there's peace and security. The earliest Christians, they, they got this. They understood the implications that Jesus was the only way to God. Because when they were out telling people about Jesus, and the authorities told them to stop, they, they discouraged them by threatening their life if they continued to talk about him. What they said was this, found in Acts chapter 4, they said, look, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind, which we must be saved. So in 2019, Barna Group took a survey of Christians and talked to them about this issue, asked them questions about what is it like to share your faith? What do you believe about sharing your faith in Jesus with other people? Uh, here are some of the results from that survey. So uh, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. A, a very, very high, like 90 plus percent of Christians agreed with all these statements. The best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Again, 90 plus percent of people say, yes, I believe the best thing that could happen to somebody is they get to know Jesus. When someone raises questions about the faith, I know how to respond. Again, an extremely high percentage of people said that. So th then that's what makes this next question so, so odd. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith and hope they will one day share the same faith. It, it, it seems like a disconnect, doesn't it? I mean, in one sense, I believe as a Christian that, at least is what the survey shows, that, that the Bible tells me that I am to tell others about Jesus. And I think that, that people, the best thing that could ever happen in their life is they come to know Jesus. And, and, and essentially, I'm, I'm equipped. I know how to, to do this. And yet, I think it's wrong to do it. It's like, huh? Well, it doesn't quite make sense. But, but I think if you think about it more, it starts to make sense because one of the reasons that people don't want to talk to people about faith is because they have these images in their mind of what it looks like to talk about Jesus. And, you know, if, if, if this is what comes to your mind when you think I am Jesus's representative here, then no wonder that you don't want to do that. It's, it's almost like we need a, some sort of paradigm shift in what it means to talk about Jesus to people that are in our life. 
You know, a, a, a paradigm shift is just a, a new way of looking at old things. And the classic example is the, the, when, when Copernicus said the earth doesn't, isn't the center of the universe that everything revolves around. Instead, our solar system result, revolves around the sun. That's, that's a paradigm shift, a new way of looking at old things. Stephen Covey talks about a paradigm shift that happened to him on the subway uh, one Sunday morning. He was in New York City, and he and others are riding the subway, and it's quiet. People are reading the newspaper, just sitting there, kind of maybe thinking about their day. And then here comes uh, a man with his kids, and they're just like going nuts. They're going crazy. They're running around. They're yelling. They're grabbing people's papers. It's just, it's just chaos. And everybody's kind of looking at the dad like, are you going to do anything about it? And finally, uh, Stephen Covey just kind of tried to politely, quietly say to the man, uh, hey, you know, your kids are a little out of control. Is there anything you could do to kind of keep them kind of, you know, calm down? And the guy looked at him and said, oh, you know, you're right. Their mother just died an hour ago, and I don't know what to, how to handle it. And I don't think they do either. And Stephen Covey says that, that, that at that moment, he had a paradigm shift. He saw that in a whole new way. When he had more information, it transformed how he saw what was happening on that subway car. Well, I think when it comes to talking about Jesus, we, we, we need more information. We need a, a paradigm shift. We need a new way of seeing it. And John chapter 4 provides that shift. See, talking to someone about Jesus doesn't need to be awkward. It doesn't need to be weird. It doesn't need to end up in an argument. Talking to someone about Jesus can and should be one of the most exciting, most meaningful things that you do in your life. So we are back in John chapter 4 this morning. And what we find is that Jesus is going through Samaria and when we read that in John 4, all the bells should be going off on our head, like, uh-oh, something is going to happen, because you see, Jews and Samaritans didn't like one another. Uh, Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. And so from the Jewish perspective, Samaritans were, were religious and national traitors, but here Jesus and the disciples are going through Samaria. They're exhausted, they're tired, they're hungry. And, and so Jesus sends the disciples, all 12 of them, off to get some food. And then he sits down by a well. It's the middle of the day, and the Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman comes out to draw water from the well. She approaches the, the Jesus as he's sitting there. And if you want to know all the details about that conversation, you should go back and listen to Dave's sermon a couple weeks ago. For, for us now, we just need to know that she was very different uh, religiously and ethnically. It's so different. The Jews and Samaritans didn't get along to the point that John tells us that they didn't even really talk to each other. Many Jewish men would wake up every morning and, and their first prayer would be to thank God that he hadn't made them a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. So when Jesus is initiating this conversation with this Samaritan woman, we can see that he's crossing all the social and conventional boundaries of his day. And in the course of that conversation, he told the Samaritan woman that as long as she drank well from that water or the water from the well that they were standing next to, she would always be thirsty. But that he was the living water that would quench the deep thirst of her soul. We pick it up in John chapter 4, verse 27. 
Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I think it's interesting that this woman is so excited about the the living water that Jesus has promised will quench her thirst that she just leaves her water jug there when she heads off back to her hometown to, to talk to people about what she's seen in Jesus. Now, did Jesus tell her to go back to the town? Did he say, hey, go back and tell people about me? No. Well, why did she leave then? Why did she leave Jesus to go back to the town? And maybe you go, well, she was just so excited about Jesus, she was enamored with him. Well, maybe, but if she was enamored with Jesus, it makes more sense for her to stay there with him and keep talking with him and keep learning from him. See, I I think that she went back to her town because she uh, knew that people there needed to hear about the love of Jesus. The people that she loved in that town needed Jesus just like she did. Because here's one thing we learn in John chapter 4, is that when you know people and when you love people, what you want to do is tell them about the good news that you have found in Jesus. And who does she go to? Well, she goes back to her hometown. She goes back to people she knew, back to people that she had a relationship with. In other words, she doesn't just go start finding random strangers to talk to. She goes to people that she knows and trusts. If you have young kids and you're looking for a babysitter, what do you do? Well, maybe you ask some other parents of young kids. Who do you use? Who have you found that, that, that you would use to babysit your kids? Or if you're moving to a new town and you're looking for a church, what do you do? Well, maybe you ask some people you know, hey, you trust. Hey, where, where do you go to church? If some random dude walks up to you on the street and says he wants to set you up on a blind date, what do you do? Well, you say, uh, no thanks, you know, get away. <laughs> Why? Well, think about how influence works in your life. And the things that matter the most, say it's finances or relationships or your future, you don't usually listen to strangers, do you? You, you listen to people that you trust. Because friends influence Friends, and if that's true in general, then especially how true it is when it comes to really the most important things in life. So that if people are going to become Christians, then then that's probably, not always, but probably not going to happen through strangers. It's probably not going to happen through something they saw on, on TV or some social media influencer. If people are going to become Christians, it's probably through the influence of someone that they know and trust. And, 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 and when this woman goes back to the hometown of the people she knows, what, what does she do? She just says, come and see, right? She, she, she just invites the people to come get to know Jesus. Sometimes we, we make things far more complicated than they really need to be, right? And, 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 and so she, she, she doesn't um, know all the answers to her own questions, much less all the answers to the questions that she's going to be asked by people. She just says, come and see. Because all this woman knew is this. 
Here is a, a man who crossed every social boundary, every religious boundary to come and talk with her. Here's a man who knew about her past, who knew all her moral baggage. Here's a man who came and offered her forgiveness. So, so she, she, she knew this. It doesn't have to do with my goodness. It doesn't have to do with my pedigree, my family. This offer of salvation is about grace. That's why she couldn't stop talking about it. She was just shocked that someone cared enough about her to talk to her about the deep issues going on in her life. See, see, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and, and, and you go through life and faith doesn't come up in a lot of your conversations, then I'd suggest that you're being inauthentic. I'd suggest that you're hiding a big part of your life from people and you're pretending to be something you're not. Because if you're a Christian, then your faith in Jesus shapes a lot of your life, right? I mean, for example, how do I handle stress and problems that come up in my life? How do I think about relationships or family or, or parenting? How do I think about my time? How do I think about death as it approaches or, or, or my values? Faith is big part of your life. And so it's going to come up in natural conversation if you're being authentic and real. Not every conversation, of course, but quite a few. And if it doesn't, if you think, well, how come faith doesn't come up at work or faith doesn't come up in my neighborhood or faith doesn't come up at school or faith doesn't come up in, in these, these normal everyday conversations, it might be either that you're, again, being inauthentic or that your faith isn't very important to you, I guess. Back to the story, verse 30. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So let, let, let me explain what's happening. Remember, the woman is gone and told the town uh, about Jesus. Hey, come and see this guy. And the disciples have come back from getting food. Yeah, so, so the, the, they're coming back. They've got food and, and the people are coming. The disciples don't see him, but the people are coming out of the town to uh, uh, see Jesus because that's what this woman has told them. So verse 35. Jesus says to the disciples, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. So Jesus is talking to the disciples and, and he can see the people from the town coming out. And, and what he says to the disciples is, if you just open your eyes, you could see how hungry people are for God. People are hungry for God. Your neighbors, your coworkers, the people you go to school with, they are hungry for God. Because I, I believe, I, I believe that most people haven't really rejected Jesus. Most people that you know, what they've rejected is a caricature of Jesus. What they've rejected is a misrepresentation of Jesus. And, and whether they know it or not, whether they would put it in exactly these words or not, the people you work with and live your life with, they're hungry for truth. And they're hungry for something that satisfies them. And they're hungry for, for, for a joy that's deeper than circumstances. And they're hungry for a clean conscience. And they need hope in their life. And the only place you can find that is Jesus. So whether they would say it or not, in, in the way we would, it doesn't really matter. They are hungry for him. And most of the people you know, 
They've already figured out that all the things they've looked to in their life, all the things that they've been promised will fill that hole in their heart, have failed them. And so Jesus says to us this morning, take your eyes off yourself, open your eyes, and look. Open your eyes and look and at your neighbor, at the people you work with, and see how hungry they are for God. Verse 36. Even now, Jesus again talking, uh, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So when Jesus talks to us about sharing our faith and talking to other people about him, he loves to use this kind of metaphor of sowing and, and reaping. Now, I, I'm not a farm guy. I, I don't know a thing about farming, right? But, but I know enough to know this, is that it's not always harvest season. You don't harvest all the time. Right? There, there's a season to, to plant the seed, a, a, a season to harvest the seed. And, and if you don't sow the seed, if you don't plant the seed, sow the seed, if you don't water it, if you don't weed it, if you don't protect the seed and protect the crop, then you will have no cropped, crop to harvest. So clearly Jesus is using this analogy, and some of it's kind of obvious, right? I mean, harvesting, when it comes to talking to people about Jesus, harvesting means seeing someone become a Jesus follower, seeing someone put their trust and hope in King Jesus. So what then is sowing? If harvesting is they come to faith, what is sowing or planting that seed? Well, it's planting the seed by introducing God in some small way, into the life of the people that you encounter. Jesus says sowing is important and so is harvesting. They're both important. So sowing is that long, slow process. It's usually behind the scenes where, where, where you uh, invest in a person or maybe even invest in an entire culture so that they are able to hear the, the gospel and believe it. Sowers are creating the right kind of soil, the right kind of environment, so that, so that people's faith can grow. And if a sower does their work well, then when the harvester comes, whenever that is, at the due time, at God's time, when the harvester comes, well, then there will be a, a big harvest. So, so, like, what does it look like to actually sow? Well, let's just take a culture. What would it look like to sow into a culture? Well, one reason that we do for Columbia as a church is because we want to help people, like help that nonprofit, help that family. But another reason we do it is because we want to sow in our culture. We want to say Christians can work across denominational lines and across racial lines and big churches and small churches can all work together for the good of our community, for those who are maybe in the time of need. Because that's sowing, it's saying here's what Christians care about. Or when we paid off the medical debt or paid off the utility debt or when you go volunteer at organizations all throughout uh, the Columbia. What we're doing is we're, we're helping people, but we're also sowing in our culture so that the person out there that doesn't know Christ starts to have a more positive image, starts to be more open to hear about him. But what does it look like on a, on a personal level? Well, what did it look like to, to sow for Jesus here in this relationship with this Samaritan woman? He, he just took an interest in her. 
I mean, you might think of sowing as, in some ways, just like being a good friend. Sowing can be just being kind. Sowing can, in, in your work can be doing your job with excellence so that you have credibility that people listen to you. It can be being a good neighbor, being sensitive to what people are going through, taking a meal or helping somebody out with a project, loaning them something, taking an interest in their life, listening, asking questions, engaging. When they say something like they're going to have a surgery or they've got a trip coming up, you could say, well, is there any way I could pray for you? I, I pray you know, to God. I don't know about you, but I, I like to pray to God. Is there something I could pray for you as this comes up? And then follow back up with them and say, how'd that turn out? That, that's, that's sowing. It's the long, slow, behind-the-scenes process of investing in people so that they might be open to hearing about Jesus. I, w- I want to tell you something that will hurt your sowing. And then I want to tell you something that, that I think is really a, 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 a good idea to do. Something that will hurt your sowing is if you become so, so partisan so, so engaged in the culture war, either how you talk around the office or how you talk in the neighborhood or what you post on social media, so that you kind of write off, you build a wall between you and half the people that you know. You don't have to say everything you think about every cultural topic. Sometimes you can just kind of keep that in your own head, you know? Here's a, here's a great idea, is invite your friends who don't know Christ to be around your friends who do. And just have them do something. Have a barbecue or join a softball league or do something where you can invite people. Go play golf together. Start a book club where you can just be around each other. You don't have to talk about faith. Just be around so that they connect one another and they get to see what Christians are like. And then at at, at some time, sewing, it can be at some point inviting them to church. Hey, come sit by you. We'll get lunch afterwards. Or, or, or maybe uh, some, reading a book and saying, hey, here's a book that I found helpful. I just want to be really specific here, really specific. So I just put up, there's probably a dozen books, but I just put up three that I think are really good to do that. Mere Christianity, The Reason for God, Making Sense of God. Look, harvesting is exciting. Harvesting, a person comes to faith in Jesus, right? Harvesting is exciting. Jesus said, if you caught it, Jesus said in John 4, sowing is hard work. A harvest we can measure, and we like to measure things. We are Americans, right? We, is there a number we can put to that? We had 100 people baptized, you know, whatever it is. You can measure it. It's impossible to really measure sowing. You don't always, can't always tell how it's going. And so, and so if we're going to value sowing, then we're going to have to see that, that everything valuable can't be measured. And that's okay. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. She gave her testimony. You know, what's that mean? Well, just to testify, it's a court term. It says that she gave her personal uh, experience. She, She bore witness to a set of facts. She told her story. 
And, and today, today's world, your story of how God has worked in your life, whatever that is, it's going to be different for everybody, but that story is powerful. And God used her story. God will use your story. And so she says, this is how it affected me. But notice, notice, it's not just how it affected her, but, it, but she told her story, and they came to see that he really is the savior of the world. In other words, this wasn't just something that affected her, but nobody else really, but it affected her, and everyone is, is, is uh, uh, capable of having a relationship with Jesus to be forgiven of their sins. He's not just her savior, he's everyone's savior. So it's subjective. This is how it affected me, but it's also objective, something we all need to believe. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, Paul uses the same imagery, this harvesting, sowing, reaping, all that. He says, what after all is Apollos? Apollos is just another Christian leader like Paul. And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So at different times, people plant seeds. You, sometimes you'll be a seed planter, sometimes you'll be a waterer. You know, you'll, you'll just encourage somebody along their path. You, you'll be kind. You'll be a good neighbor. You'll invite them to the book club. Later on, someone else might harvest it. But God is the one who is always causing the growth. So remember we had that survey and we said people thought that, that, that the Bible tells us that we should share faith. And that the best thing that could happen to people is that they would come to know Jesus. And that we feel equipped to do it, but we still don't do it. We somehow think it's wrong. I, I, I have another uh, thing to show you that might help explain why we think it's wrong. So same survey, same survey. Let's go back. If someone disagrees with you, they are judging you. The, the, the survey, the data shows that the younger you are, I don't mean like young, like uh, you know, 10. I just mean uh, if you're a millennial or Gen Z, then, then you have higher percentage if you agree with this, at least according to the stats. Higher percentage you agree that if somebody disagrees with you, they're judging you. So if you think that every time somebody disagrees with you, you're being judged, it's going to be hard to talk to people about Jesus because not everybody's going to agree. It takes a while for someone to come to faith. There's a guy named Penn Jillette. He is part of this uh, Penn and Teller magic comedy routine in Vegas, kind of well-known, popular. He's a, a committed atheist, committed atheist, and uh, he tells a story about how he, he is doing one of his presentations out in Vegas, and people are coming up afterwards and, and saying things to him, and he's you know, just a guy, a kind of a sharp-looking guy standing off to the side that's kind of waiting his turn, comes up, says some really nice complimentary things they had engaged with the, with the program, and then hands him a, a Bible. And, and Pendulet, this atheist, right? So how does he interpret this? Does he feel like he's being judged? Or how does, how does he feel? What's his response? Well, here's what he said. Pendulet. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Weird word. It just means share your faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth it telling them, this because it would make it socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I just tackle you. And this is more important than that. Imagine that you had a cure for cancer 
or you had a cure for multiple sclerosis, something, right? And, and you had taken this medicine because it had helped you, and, and you'd be out testifying to it. You'd be, you'd be saying, look, th- this medicine worked for me. You should know about it and talk about it. You'd write commercials, whatever. You'd want everybody to know about it. Now, if somebody looked at you and said, well, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I'm not sure the science backs that up, whatever. They might disagree, but they wouldn't think like you're judgmental or you're narrow. You just want people to know about what you have found that could help them. What Pendulette said, if you really love someone, you're going to want to tell them about the most important person you've ever met, Jesus. You're going to want to tell them about the, the joy and the hope that you have in Jesus. You're going to want them to experience the forgiveness and the eternal life and all that can only be found in Jesus. See, love is what it all comes down to. Love is why we share our faith with other people. But that only makes sense because it's love that drove Jesus to come in the first place. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Love is what drove Jesus to the cross. Love is what caused him to offer his life for sinners like you and me and everyone. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. It was love that drove him to do it. And it was love that drove him to spill his blood. He said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. To experience the love that you have in Jesus. The love that you want to share with the whole world. And you want everybody you know and care about to know this great love. But it starts with knowing that Jesus loved you. And when you come to communion, I want you to experience his love. Just come forward. You don't need to say anything. Take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine that is in our hand or the juice that's on the stool. There, if, you, if you're gluten-free, there's little gluten-free uh, bowls of, of communion elements at all the stations. So just go to any of them. Come forward. But first, uh, let's pray. Those who are gonna serve communion, if you'll get in place while I pray, that'd be great. Father, you loved us. You gave your life for us. You sought us out, you opened our eyes, you changed our heart, you forgave our sins, you put joy deep in our soul. You promised to be with us, to to take everything that happens in our life and turn it for your glory and our good. You are a peace and our security, you're a rock, you're everything, Jesus. And I pray that as we come today, we would experience your love and communion and then we would go and in humility and in love, sow and water and reap that others might come to know this same deep love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People of God, come to the table of the Lord Jesus.